Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. And this is our next podcast on our journey through the life course. Each month, um, we've been dedicating one of our podcasts to the human journey through the social work lens from pre-birth to the end of life. Last time we looked at middle age, which was, you know, quite close to the bone, Jerry. And now today we're going to look at retirement, which for me is even closer to the bone. So um, it should be an interesting pod. Yeah, and we've got a few thank yous. Um, everyone who's who's been listening and um, actually I just was looking at the uh, world stats. and uh, The United Kingdom is still just about in the lead ahead of the United States, followed by Australia and Canada has overtaken Japan, um, and Germany is catching Ireland. So our listeners around the world are um, growing, and it's really wonderful to see that. And also have a couple of particular thank yous. Uh, Lorna from Staffordshire, who emailed me to say that um, she'd passed the podcasts on to colleagues. And also I bumped into uh, someone who I worked with in Durham, who um, told me that they'd been listening to the podcast, and that's really nice to hear directly from somebody that they're, they're enjoying it. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's actually, it's quite humbling really, Jerry, isn't it? It's lovely to think that we can have these conversations and that other people will join us in thinking about these topics. I, th- I think that's a really wonderful thing. Um, and I'd encourage people to tell us what they think and they can get in touch with us by either visiting our website, which is www.helpfulsocialwork.com or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast because we really do want to hear from you. So you said we're going to talk about retirement, and I have definition of retirement, uh, which is withdrawal from one's occupation or position, especially upon reaching a certain age. It can be the age at which you withdraw from work or activity, the act of retiring or the state of being retired, or it can also mean privacy or seclusion or a retreat. And it comes from old French, meaning to take back or to withdraw. So I'm really interested in the idea of retirement as sort of withdrawal. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting concept as well. It, um, I got the feeling that when most people think of retirement, they really mad, imagine it in terms of some idyllic future. Um, they're always saving up for their retirement, money, plans, activities. They don't think about it in terms of losing things, do they, or withdrawal. They the conversation to me feels more about what we'll gain in terms of time, personal freedom, all that kind of stuff. But the truth is we often only think about the first stage of retirement, which is the carefree years. And um, maybe one, one way we can start this conversation um, about this these phases of life we're about to talk about is to think that there's three phases of retirement. There's what we call the carefree years, the ones we think about. That's straight after retiring. We normally have a period of activity. We might volunteer, travel, learn new languages, take up a sport. And it can last anywhere from eight to 10 years statistically if you retire at around 63, 64. Then, and I think they'll probably be what we'll be talking about mostly today, um, the quiet years, the second phase of retirement, are where things start to actually hurt a bit, not work as well. We can take longer to get moving, quite like an afternoon nap. And we can think about that 
in terms of withdrawing or moving back from engagement and rethinking our activities and commitment. And that can kind of last another five to eight years. And then we move into the frailty years. And I know that we'll be talking about that in another podcast. Um, so for me, the withdrawing doesn't happen straight away in retirement, depending why you retire, I guess. Yes. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what the scope of retirement is. And and actually, it, it, it really depends on kind of life expectancy, doesn't it? So yeah. previously, people didn't retire because their life expectancy up to about the 18th century was only 26 to 40 years. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so there had been some kind of historic practices of giving people um, a pension of some sort when they retired from particularly things like military or some of the civil service posts or royal posts, for example, in um, in the UK. But it really only became widely adopted that you would stop work and receive some pay in the in the 20th century. Mm. So, uh, you know, state pension in the UK was established in 1908 for a limited section of the older population, and then it's kind of gradually developed and the state pensions developed and expanded over the last hundred years. So it's not a very long standing practice. No, and and, and that makes me realise that retirement as I know it from my parents' experience is a really recent thing because I was raised to think I would retire at 55 years old and then I would be free to travel, be creative, be involved in my community, in my children's lives. Um, however, as I'm edging closer to retirement age, I'm 55 now, um, I've really had to adjust my thinking because I now accept it's likely health allowing that I'll work for at least another decade, if not longer. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing as we're living longer, I've got to say. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and the retirement age then is, is another thing kind of to think about because it does vary in different countries. You can actually look all of these different ages up, but, you know, just random ones. Libya is 70, Moldova 63 for men and 58 and a half for women. I'm not sure right. why. Sri Lanka 65, Peru 60. The UK has changed. So 65, um, but from December 2018, it will rise to 66 in October 2020 and then 67 between 2026 and 28 and 68 between 2037 and 2039. So actually that sparked quite a lot of discussion about people who were born expecting to retire at a particular age or worked mm -hmm. expecting to retire at a particular age and then the goalpost has moved as yeah. they've been moving towards it. Yes, and particularly, I mean, we know we know about this at the moment because it has actually been mentioned in both of the political campaign in all the political campaigns around WASPy women, women against state state pension inequality, um, and this is the 3.8 million women born in the 1950s who've been badly hit by the change in state pension age from 60 to 65, because that's a big gap five years, isn't it, to have to manage your money for. Yeah, and a lot uh, of people hadn't prepared. Or... Yeah, exactly. No. So it's that kind of sudden change where you've got to find mm. money to get through or you've got to, um, you have maybe already taken retirement expecting to get a pension yes. in so many years and then you've got to wait another five. 
It's really and and the rea- sorry, the reality is, Jerry, that you cannot find work again. And this is one of the things for me because it's fine that I can see my, you know, I'm going to be at least 65 before I retire, but I can plan for that. But I have to plan against kind of limited employment opportunities as I get older. And, and the other thing that that makes me think about is how we transition different kinds of employment. So there's there's big industries where people have traditionally been employed which have changed in you know in our working lives so the coal industry for example in the UK um the steel industry I used to work in Sheffield and a lot of people lost jobs because of changes um and retired early because of that and often in, in ill you know in poor health and we know that things like climate change will mean that there will be There'll need to be changes from particular kinds of industries to other kinds. There'll need to be technological changes. And mm. even though we know this, I don't think there's been any real tradition of preparing well for it and making sure that people who've developed skills and expertise in a particular area that then have to transition to something else actually can do that and wouldn't yes. just end up having to stop work uh, with yeah. all the kind of problems of income and resource and you know opportunity and quality of life that that comes with it's that idea of lifelong learning isn't it and making sure that we see ourselves as kind of viable and able to contribute to our society you know for as much of our life as we're possibly able to do and and not just because we need to be little worker bees, which is maybe a bit what that sounds like, but because actually we know that people love to be connected with each other and they actually like to feel, we like to feel useful and purposeful, don't we? And so people want their contribution to society to be valued their lifelong. And I think that this is one of the big struggles for me is how do we understand how contributions are made to, to maintain the quality of our life for our whole life without it necessarily being tied to um, commercial or economic job roles. Yes, and I was just thinking, are we out of scope of social work here? But actually we're not because the the areas, um, well, there's a couple of things. So, so our social work ethics talk about dignity and um, worth of all human beings. And that includes kind of combating any idea that if you're not economically active, you're not worthy. Or there's also the the areas of people's lives that we look at in a social work assessment include occupation, connection, um, meaningful relationships, um, links to the community, all those kind of things. And a lot of that does come from work. So we've got to think about yeah. you know, that and and the transition then from work. And ensuring that those things don't get undermined. That's right. And we've talked we're talking about retirement, but retirement can come from retrenchment. Retirement is not always voluntary. Um, it can come from poor health. So for some of the people that we work with, their journey into a struggle or difficulty may have started with an unexpected retirement and a real struggle with them defining themselves. Because as you say, people define themselves through, we ask people, don't we, what do you do? What do you do for a living? It's a, it's a big question. 
Um, you know, if you're a man in your early 50s and you've been retrenched and someone says, what do you do for a living? And I've known people in this situation. Nothing is a hard answer, actually. So, so there is lots of reasons that social workers should be interested in, re in retirement. Um, and as you know, I've been working in Australia with um, financial advisors, talking to them about the types of skills social workers have around helping people plan and helping people have difficult conversations as early as they can around um, retirement issues. And the crossover between us professionally was much was much wider than I'd realised. You know, it's so important for, for people to live lives that they value, that has dignity and hopefulness. You have to be able to have an element of control throughout your whole life, yeah. including that, yeah. retirement. And the experiences are really varied. So we have got a growing um, heterogeneity. Ooh. Growing diversity of of people, um, and also a growing um, diversity in the quality of life that people have, and the opportunities they have, and the resources they have. And there was a really good report that came out last year, uh, called by Aging from Aging Better, which was reporting to experiences of the transition into retirement, and they've identified the kind of major factors that affect what people's experiences are like. So I'm just going to run through them: their gender socioeconomic position, ethnicity, family situation, health. Um, so, oh, and attitudes to ageing mm. and the kind of work that you had and how prepared you are. So a whole range of things, but there's some really, really interesting points in this. Um, so if you take gender, men tend to have more positive attitudes to retirement and tend to be more engaged in planning for retirement than women. Mm. And that kind of rises from difference historically between male and female labour market participation. And women's retirement plans are much more closely linked to their health and that of their partners than men's. And also linked to their partner because um, pension is affected by how many years you've worked full-time or part-time or in job share. And women are more likely to be in part-time or job sharing roles. And this can significantly affect the pension pot they're likely to receive, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a real socioeconomic um, difference as well, as you'd expect. So if you're in better financial circumstances, you're more likely to plan for retirement. But also, too, there's something about the way that the services banks and um, other business accounts and all sorts of things work with you when you have more money, because when you have more money, you get more invitations to think about wealth management. In other words, thinking about your lifelong manage, you know, your lifelong wealth, including your retirement age. And so there's more invitations for you. There's more conversations about it. There's more incentives to save because you have better bank accounts. There's all sorts of structural things around you having more wealth and husbanding and keeping more wealth. I think that that social workers should be thinking about. Yeah, and ethnicity is also a factor. So um, people who aren't white very often have worse financial circumstances. Um, oh, yeah. Family situation, uh, being married is associated with greater preparedness for and a more proactive approach to planning for retirement. Now, that's a kind of a 
sort of slightly traditional thing. It might mm-hmm. well change. But if you've got a marriage, if you've got a partnership, then that collaboration can really help people. Just conversely, just like to say that being divorced in your 50s after a long marriage or in your early retirement can be really difficult and stressful financially. Um, it can be difficult to find new work again when you weren't planning to, and the resources that you both plan to use to manage one household now have to be split over two, and it's still a finite resource. So actually, um, for women in particular, um, there's quite a bit of research that talks about ageism in women and how women over 55 find it very hard to get work in Australia once they're out of a job. And there's significant hardship experienced by women of this age in Australia, and in particular, single elderly women. So aged over 60, living in Australia have the distinction of belonging to the lowest income earning family group in the Household Income and Labour Dynamics Survey. So, And then there's, um, there's health. So not surprisingly, poor health in general leads to poorer planning for retirement. Um, it can lead to early retirement, which can be a problem for people. And it's not just the poor health um, itself. It's the issue of whether you can make plans around it. Yeah. And, and issues about whether you can actually get the resources, because one of the things that I experienced when working with um, adults with disabilities and they would get um, their own personal funding to resource what they wanted in terms of help. In some communities, the the um, resources weren't available. So they could get the funding, but they couldn't buy the help in because it wasn't there in their communities. So actually, you can plan well, but you've still got to think about the community you're in and how it's planning for that just, kind of stuff. Yeah. Well. You've just made me think of something else, which is that there is a whole group of adults who never have the opportunity to work. And, uh, yep. and save yep. um, and are always um, reliant on another income, um, whether yes. that's through benefits in the, in the social security system or it's through um, care and support from others around them. And so when we're talking about retirement, there's a group of people for whom that, that isn't really meaningful. No. Um, so, yeah, I, I had actually forgotten to acknowledge that before, um, but that's a, real, that's a real issue. So when um, we have kind of discussions in the UK, for example, about how to fund adult social care. There's a big thing about people shouldn't have to sell their houses or they shouldn't have to use their savings or whatever. But there's a really big group of people who would never yeah, be in that save. position. Uh, you have to be really mindful of that as well. We really do. And that's the same as if you um if you get an illness at the at the, I guess the wrong time, your peak earning time. So from, you know, your thirties to your forties are that time, aren't they, when you can really um, kind of that's where you normally buy your house and, and get yourself sorted. Well, a life-limiting illness at that stage can actually put you into the same category um, where all of a sudden those options for planning and retirement are just taken away from you. Um, yeah, and, and we have to have conversations about everybody. Yeah, and then there's some really interesting stuff around attitudes. So, if you feel more positive about aging and retirement, then you're more likely to plan. Yeah. Um, if you are more positive about your work, you might intend to retire later. 
Um, if you've got working somewhere where there's kind of age-friendly um, policies, then you might have more positive expectations around retirement. But if you're working somewhere where there's low control, um, low support, where yeah, there's issues with the work, then you might actually be wanting to, to retire earlier. Um, if your work's important to you and you kind of have to retire, then that can cause anxiety. And then overall, generally, people don't really prepare very well. Uh, and that's that's affected by your um, your capability to plan ahead. Um, and also you know, both both kind of financial and sort of emotional and um, having the having the the headspace, I suppose. Mm. And the, and the control or the feeling of control to actually do the planning. But generally, we're not very good at it. I know, and I, I find this absolutely fascinating, I've got to say. And once again, the work that I was privileged to do um, in Australia um, in the financial sector taught me how reluctant people are to talk about the last 30, the last three decades of your life, you know, how reluctant they are to face the fact that our retirement is the start of our winding down on this earth and, and our death, quite frankly. And that conversations for me about retirement should really start when you begin your working life. And as far as I'm concerned, planning should be part of employment responsibilities alongside pension contributions, because not all people are long-sighted about their future. And although it should be inevitable progression for people, I think it it's put off and put off until the day comes. And so for me, part of our role in social work is around financial education and helping people and families to think more and more about whole life planning. I think we should be unafraid to have those conversations at any opportunity we're given. Um, I had this interesting conversation the other day. I was We were talking about poverty um, and social work and I was talking with, um, you know, um, Annie from surviving safeguarding and um, another one of my colleagues and I was saying in my opinion social workers should go back to the stage where they do really robust financial assessments not to penalize people or to tell them they're spending their money wrong or anything like that but to understand the economic impact of their daily lives and to look for ways to maximize and support you know, rather than leaving them distressed and worried, like it's an like it's an unspoken thing. It shouldn't be unspoken. It's a reality. Yeah, if I you completely have more agree. Money, you have more I, th health. I think we we when we're doing assessments, we're talking to people about what they what's important to them in life and what they you know, what they hope to achieve and what they hope for, and then we're talking to them about what they can bring to that. Mm. And money is is an obvious thing to talk about. Um, Look, and, what's, and what's I your talk... resource? But I do accept that it's um, in practice, it's very difficult to. Um, it's not difficult necessarily to have those conversations, but if without a real kind of sense of role around that, and a real sense mm. of where you take those conversations and what you, what you can do with those conversations, I think it it's not as surprising that that we sometimes struggle to do that, or we can struggle to do that. Um, sure. Uh, the the other thing that I just wanted to highlight from the data is the Office of National Statistics stuff around um, the cheery subject of life expectancy mm, um, and healthy life expectancy as well. So 
currently in the UK, the life expectancy is 79.5 years for males, 83.1 for females, average, obviously. Um, the latest data on healthy life expectancy was 2013 to 15, and that's people's self-assessment of good health. And that's 63.4 years for males and 64.1 for females. Again, average, and this is kind of self-reported. Um, but that's something to bear in mind that we, we're, we can expect to live a lot longer than we will live healthily on average. And the other thing is that the massive gap between areas. Um, yes. You know, so in the UK, Kensington and Chelsea has the highest life expectancy, Glasgow City the lowest. And at birth, the gap um, in healthy life expectancy between the highest and lowest areas is uh, 13 and a half years for men and nearly 12 years for women. It's really wrong, actually, Jerry. Out of it, really, out of all the things that wind me up, and as you know, quite a lot of things do. This huge gap in our country. Let's just talk about the UK for a minute. It, it's just it's inexcusable. It, yeah, feel, it's inexcusable, really and it's but it's not inexplainable. You know, if you look no, at the kind of factors for it, we've got lots yeah. of obvious things around socioeconomic status and yeah. the kind of health behaviours and things that come from that, and also the environment itself, and the um, the community deprivation and the availability of services and resources. And you kind of think of it and think, all of that stuff is fixable. Um, yeah, it's all it's all things that you can change. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like this. And all of those things are within the social work role. One of the things I've, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about the social work role, um, particularly for another podcast we're doing later on, so I won't start raving now. But um, we need to be much more like contextual social workers. And by that I mean that we need to stop fixating on individual by individual by individual and we also need to see actively that our role is about challenging societal and systemic structures. And I think what's happened for us is that, you know, I know that worldwide we understand social work is about that. And I know that at Baswa they understand social work is about that. But I think there's thousands and thousands of us that just work case by case, person by person by person. And there has to be people doing that, serving other people. But there has to be something in our mindset that really wants to challenge structure actively all the time. Yeah, and I think that's right. And that's um, that's a human rights thing, but it's also a social rights thing. It's not just that we, you know, we accept that people should be should be able to live lives of you know, kind of dignity, um, be treated with respect, but that that requires some essential social rights like opportunities to earn money um basic social security housing um mm. things like that and there are well, there are actually when there's a un um declaration of rights of the older persons yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, off you yeah. Go. and that includes um regarding retirement that older people should be able to participate in determining when and at what pace they withdraw from the labor force they should remain integrated in society um, and actively involved in policies that affect their well-being. They should be able to share their knowledge and skills with younger generations, be able to seek and develop opportunities to serve the community, 
um, be able to pursue opportunities for the develop, full development of their potential and then treated fairly regardless of age, gender, racial, ethnic background, disability or any other status and be valued independently of their economic contribution. And that's a that's a long standing fight that social workers have been involved in this idea that if you're not economically active, you're not as valuable. Valuable. Yeah. And that goes across the whole age range. And that really dismisses some of the amazing things that retirees do, particularly in their active so-called carefree years. Um, lots and lots of people that I know personally, but there's also research to back this up, you know, that that generation of people are actively caring for grandchildren, providing heaps and heaps of um development and security opportunities for their grandchildren and for their children to work. Um, they're doing lots of active work in the community, helping libraries and community centres and all sorts of other places run, organising events. Um, there's many, many ways that people who have retired from work are really building and keeping communities together. And that's valuable. Yeah, really there was, um, there's a really good overview of social work with older people that Milne and colleagues did a couple of years ago, which we'll probably talk more about in the next podcast about older age. But that included um, looking at carers and about a third of family carers in the UK are older people themselves. And older carers are more likely than younger carers to provide long term intensive care alongside having health problems of their own. So, yeah, there's a there's a tremendous amount of. um contribution from people who sometimes are struggling themselves as well yeah so so there's lots of really great things that we get from people who retire there's also lots of support that people who retire might need and there's also um, lots of societal structures and things that we need to be thinking about as well all in the social work role yeah, so I kind of summarised the social work role in my thinking with a couple of bullet points, really. So fighting ageism, supporting mm. people through transitions and the emotional impact of those. What you've said about helping people plan and particularly just being really open about money, talking about mm. money, and then thinking about how people continue to have occupation and be included and be connected and we are starting, I suppose, increasingly for many people at this time of life to be thinking about support that they need now or will need in the future and the kind of preventative side of things as well. Yes, um, for me, there's it, it's the fact that we just need to be able to have really honest and helpful conversations wherever we can with people about retirement and we need to help them have those conversations with their family members and really understand the implications as realistically as they can um, because many of the people we work with are going to be disadvantaged through ill health or poverty, poorly resourced communities, unexpected events um, and that makes being able to talk about retirement, resourcing, and all those issues, you know, the emotional issues that you've talked about, really critical. Yeah, um, that was, yeah, we've, I mean, as you know, Baz has been doing a lot of work around poverty and it's just kind of this constant, um, almost mantra really, that uh, 
poverty is a social work issue. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think people sort of know that. We just have to kind of keep it at the forefront of our minds. Well, I would go further and say it's a social work responsibility. And by that, I don't mean it's our fault that people are poor or that, um, you know, we should be going out there with our coins. I mean that we have to be one of the professional groups of people who demand difference and who are responsive and who are really actively working to do something about poverty. So reflective questions. Oh, my word, there's so much on my mind now. Um, one of the things that I did think about was being aware of how can we be aware of and incorporate a sense of people's work and occupation history? And I would add to that now, let's not be limited in how we think about work, because yes. that, you know, that question of what did you do, what do you do, is, is so, so, it's so limited and it can mm. limit people. Um, and it gives us permission to pigeonhole people in all sorts of different ways, actually. It's a, it's a quite... Um, classist it's 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 not the nicest question and then i suppose the other thing is about how we make sure that we kind of um, yeah address this this massive and it, you know unconscionable difference in healthy life expectancy and life expectancy and um opportunity between different parts of our own country yeah. And then for me, how do we keep people engaged and active in community life once they've finished working is really critical. Um, I have a friend of mine got on a train this morning to go down and she's in her 60s and she's gone down to visit her mother who's 87 and has just got a bit of help in in the garden, still lives independently, remarkable woman. But I asked my friend, is she making new friends? Uh, and she said, not, not really. And for me, one of the really important things about a life well lived for your whole life is that you keep participating, you keep engaging, you keep finding new people to have new conversations with, um, and you keep learning new things as much as you are able. So your circle doesn't narrow to nothing your circle continues to be as broad as it can be, as broad as you want it to be. And there's another thing that I've just thought of, which I, I want to pick up more in the next podcast about older age, which is there's a, in many services, there is this difference between, um, there's a kind of a line, a service line at 65. Mm. This is what people under 65 um, can access. This is what people over 65 can access. So that, um, that's something for us to be aware of as well. Is there a um, an an ageist element to our services where we kind of say, depending on your age, this is what you can and can't have, and and that's something to pick up more when we're thinking about the difference between what we expect the quality of life of of working age adults to be compared to older older adults. There will be all these unconscious stories, won't there? Yeah, so that's actually a really good reflective question to think about. How do we view people pre and post retirement? Do we think mm. of them as different kinds of people? Yeah. 
I hope that you're enjoying our conversations as much as we're enjoying having them because it's absolutely fascinating thinking about this stuff, isn't it, Jerry? Yeah, it really is. Um, I always go away with my head seething with ideas. I know. Well, that's why sometimes in the podcasts when we're talking, I'm actually really quiet. And that's because there's so much that has been illuminated to me during the conversation. I'm like, oh, yes, that's that's good stuff. That's the stuff of life. 